Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today, we're going to look at Season 2, Episode 6 of Star Trek Lower Decks, an episode entitled The Spy Humongous. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Rodney Cup. I'm the philosophy professor. And I'm Dr. Michael Merrick, the media professor. The best way to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements is to watch our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. There's a pinned post there, actually a couple of pinned posts that have links to platforms that you can use for your podcast app, or you can go directly to the website and subscribe at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. We should note, Rodney, that it's been announced this week that Star Trek Discovery won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Visual Effects in in the previous season. Outstanding Visual Effects in a single episode. The episode was Sakal, which was Season 3, Episode 11, I think it was. And that's the one, it includes scenes in the crashed Kelpian ship's holodeck in which Burnham looks like a trill, Culber is a Bajoran, and Saru right. is a human being, and the monster chasing everybody, and Book's ship flying through the nebula, and the Viridian capturing Discovery. You know, it was a, it was a big episode. Right. And it was, there's no question, it was very nice to look at, and it was great to see Doug Jones uh, as a human being. But we, our listeners might remember that we thought that episode was pretty incoherent, um, unfortunately, so great to look at, and the award wasn't for the writing. Yeah, uh, yeah, there were there were lots of plot devices and things that that made you stop and say, "Wait, wait a minute!" But yeah, visually, you know, it was very very strong and well deserving of the uh, the award. Right. So congratulations for that discovery. Moving on to our regular business, we're going to start off with a summary of this week's episode of Lower Decks. And Professor Merrick will provide us with that. Yes, the Cerritos is at the Paclid homeworld to attempt to negotiate a peace treaty to end the recent Paclid raids. But while Freeman and Shax are on the planet, a Paclid spy beams up to Cerritos, claiming to be seeking asylum, but he's really looking for information on Federation technology. Packlets on the planet claim he is a prisoner, and they hold Freeman and Shaq's prisoner until he is returned. Meanwhile, our regulars on the Lower Decks crew gets an undesirable assignment called Anomaly Consolidation Duty. Essentially what they have to do is collect all of the artifacts with weird properties that officers have brought back from various away missions. But Mariner considers it just to be trash day, it's dangerous science trash that can't just get recycled the ordinary way, but she's not too happy about it. Boimler doesn't join them because another group of ensigns recruits him to join their club in which they help prepare each other to advance in rank, or at least that's what they think they're doing. They call themselves the Red Shirts. They are impressed that Boimler served with Riker, and they also have inside information that there's going to be an acting captain job open on Cerritos. When Boimler leaves the table where his Lower Decks friends are sitting, he trips and spills some food on himself, causing Tendi to laugh uproariously. And remember that. It's important. We're going to come back to that idea. The Red Shirts give Boimler a makeover, 
More appearance of muscles under his uniform, less chaotic hair, a touch of gray at his temples. Channeling Riker, he even makes a pretty good simulated speech to inspire his crew in a pretend desperate situation. But he starts to get disillusioned with the other red shirts because they're kind of snobbish towards the other ensigns. The Anomaly Consolidation team has several incidents with the science artifacts, many of them directly affecting Mariner in unfortunate ways, but they manage to recover from most of them. But Mariner gets pretty mad that Tendi is trying to make the work fun, because that's who Tendi is. But then an artifact makes Tendi turn into something that looks like a giant scorpion, because she too has finally gotten mad about everything that's been happening to them. Boimler and the other red shirts see Tendi, and the other red shirts start making speeches, because that's what they think a captain's supposed to do. Boimler, however, realizes that what's happening to Tendi is because the artifact is a mood shifter, and she's mad. So he makes the replicator spill food on him, remember that scene earlier, and he takes some pratfalls, and Scorpion Tendi starts laughing and returns to normal. Boimler tells the red shirts that what is really shameful is trying to build a persona by copying other captains. He tells them to be their own captain. Most of the other red shirts kind of decide that the ranking up club is not for them. Mariner and Rutherford tell Tendi that the best anomaly today was Tendi seeing the silver lining in everything. And the leader of the red shirts, Casey, does get that acting captain duty, which lasts for maybe 10 seconds until the next shift arrives. Meanwhile, the Paclid spy Rumdar slips away from Ransom and Kayshawn and somehow gets out an airlock into space, but they beam him back in and he isn't too bad off. He beams back down to the planet where Freeman tricks him into revealing the secret Paclid plan, which is to smuggle a Verubian bomb onto Earth. And I'm kind of wondering if that sets up something we'll see in following episodes. Makes you wonder. So thank you for that. We're going to look at some of these individual elements that got our attention this episode. And we'll talk a little bit about messages, morals, and meanings later. But I wanted to start off with that cold open. I, I found it a little awkward. You had Freeman providing exposition to Shax in the transporter room that really should have been entered into her captain's log, I thought. So that was a little awkward. I mean, Shax does not need to be told why Starfleet gave Cerritos uh, this particular mission, I think. You know, from a scriptwriter's point of view, a certain amount of, as you say, exposition is needed to explain to the audience. But you're right, that could have been in the captain's log because the captain's log is explaining to the Admiralty or other people that'll, that'll be reading. I mentioned a minute I, ago this Paclid plan to send a bomb to Earth, and, and I suggested, I, I suspect that's going to be kind of the end of the season story arc. We have, I believe, four episodes left to go. That's and right. And maybe not all four of them, but I think we're going to come back to that. And my guess is that it's going to somehow play a role in the season finale. I could imagine a cliffhanger, the bomb goes off, and we have to wait a year to see what happens. We do know that there'll be a third season, so it's not impossible that they'll do some kind of cliffhanger. They didn't at the end of the first season, but, well, sort of, I guess, with Boimler being off on the Titan. But we'll see if there is a cliffhanger. If so, I suspect it's going to have to do with that bomb. Right. No, I mean, you can't mention that bomb and then just forget about it. So right. that's going to come back at some point, cliffhanger or no. Something I noticed about anomaly consolidation duty and acting captain's duty 
they have the very same initials, ACD. That can't be a coincidence. There's something important there. I'll talk more about this later, but I'll, I'll just note now, anomaly consolidation duty is obviously dirty, but it's important. And as it turns out, even though the red shirts are competing for active captain's duty, it's meaningless. But like I said, we'll say more about this a little bit later. One of the first things I noticed is Star Trek uses a stardate calendar, basically in which a thousand stardates equals one year. Now, maybe not for the characters, but the writers, all the way from the beginning of Next Generation, 1,000 stardates equals a year. Now, we're on episode 6 of 10 this season, episode 6 of 10 episodes, but the stardate in the captain's log is only 58105.1. That Mm -hmm. means this episode is something like early February in the year 2381. Usually, they would space out the star dates of different episodes, so episodes happen periodically throughout the year, Mm -hmm. uh, on the assumption that the next year is going to be the next increment of star dates. So this this year is 58000, next year would be 59000, hypothetically. But again, it makes me think, like I mentioned uh, a bit ago, that maybe there's going to be a big cliffhanger and somewhere all of the next season will be set in the same year. So I don't know. We'll see. Do you know if there's a precedent for that? In terms of... Past terms, Star Trek. No. Um, I have no idea myself. I, I think Best of Both Worlds, the episode oh, one happened at the end of December and episode two happened a few hours later at the beginning of January based <laughs> on the star dates. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, often when we've had cliffhangers, the resolution of the cliffhanger happens immediately. And so at least that first episode needs to follow from the previous dating. So, but we'll see. All all of this season so far has been very early in the 58000 star dates. So, and I suspect that's not an accident. I suspect someone has some some reason for doing that. Yeah, these folks know enough Star Trek that that that's intended. It's, It's not, they're just not picking these star dates arbitrarily. I agree. Yeah. I wanted to mention (laughs) uh, an episode from last season, Moist Vessel, when Mariner tries to make scraping carbon filters fun by racing fellow crew members who were assigned that same task. You remember that? remember that, that, yes. And she compares the task to an activity done in a Klingon prison. I remember that because in this episode, they're doing anomaly consolidation duty, and she has no interest in making it fun. She tells Tendi, stop trying to make this fun. And maybe she's just having a bad day, but I find that to be a little weird. And she doesn't Didn't just you, tell, tell Tendi, she yells at her. That's right. She's, she's quite hostile about it. So yeah, uh, it, it's an interesting comparison between, between the two episodes. Now in Moist Vessel, she knew that she'd been given the worst jobs on the ship, and she was intentionally trying to make it not work for... The folks that assigned them to her, but uh, including her mom, but uh, <laughs> you know, because they assigned as punishment, and she wanted them to perceive that the punishment was ineffective. So, but she could have. Oh, done there that is that. Too. She could have done that here too, if she if she was really in control of of her emotions and and her attitude. A couple other quick notes. Of course, it's funny that the ranking up club calls itself the <laughs> Red Shirts. Yes, because we know it's a Star Trek fan idiom 
back from the original series before the uniforms color changed. Now Command wears wears red, but back in the original series, the red uniforms included security guys, and they were the ones that were going to get killed down on the planet. They were kind of the extras, not speaking parts or anything like that. And so that is funny, and I'm, I'm sure 99.99% of all the people watching already know about red shirts making it funny. I also, did, did you yeah. notice that Rumdar, uh, the Packlet spy, they gave him a USS Cerritos t-shirt, and it was using the, the font from the original series. That's right. And a uh, cap with a Starfleet Delta on it. Yeah. Who knew starships had their own gift shops? <laughs> I did not know that. Well, well, I, I mean, remember in Discovery, what what was the episode that we saw Michael Burnham and I think Tilly jogging through the corridor? That's right. They had a T-shirt that said in their disco, disco shirts. Disco yeah. On it. Yeah. So, question about anomalous consolidation duty: Are the ensigns supposed to recognize everything they come across? I mean, it, does that come in their training? And if not, shouldn't the bridge crew leave notes to them so that they don't risk being turned into scorpions? I, mean, I, I I know they did this for laughs, but it seemed a little weird to me. Yeah, maybe you're not supposed to ask questions, but I did notice at least some of the items, like the giant frog's head, which they called attention to. It was on the pad right when they first talking about the ACD uh, job. It was on the oh, that's data right. database they were carrying. So they may have had a master list that, due to the length of the episode, they just didn't show us having them check it very often. Right. Did you notice the mention of whatever the uh, the female red shirt's name was, saying, Boimler, maybe we should uh, take in a winger Bingston show? We've come across him before. He was yep. a Cerritos crew member in Crisis Point last season who did a one-man show and doing impressions and things. So he was a, apparently a well-known entertainer on Cerritos. Right. I wonder if she's going to pop up again. I mean, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe she and Boimler might uh, become an item. I don't know. She was obviously a little bit impressed by him. And who wouldn't be? Well, I mean, you know, if you're not a snobbish red shirt, right? <laughs> right. But anyway, and by, should we say something about, I, I thought they had a really clever double entendre in this episode uh, when Casey says that he needs to learn to blow something brass. I just wanted to say hats off to them. Although I'm not sure double entendres belong in Star Trek. Yeah, that was not the only one in this episode. And I I suppose it was funny, but I also thought it was in poor taste and maybe not suitable for younger younger viewers. So I would rather they hadn't done any of those things. In the membership of the Red Shirts, one of the ensigns was a feline humanoid character. And I think it was their intention that that ensign was a Kazinti because there's a scene where he demonstrates poor posture. And in that poor posture scene, he looked exactly like Kazinti in the original animated series. Yes, he did. So Kazinti in Starfleet is something new if Lower Decks connects to the rest of Star Trek. Right. And you can do that sort of thing much more easily in, in an animated series. Sure, so. Certainly, certainly. So I say have at it. Something else I noticed about... Anomaly consolidation duty. It's interesting that it's Boimler who recognizes the cube that Tendi picks up as an ataxian mood shifter. And, you know, after last season, that episode Envoys, you'd expect, I think, Mariner uh, to be the first or the only 
a lower decker to recognize that thing. But Boimler does it. And so Mariner doesn't save the day here. Someone else does, namely Boimler. He's the hero of the episode, I think. And when we get a little bit later here in our conversation today, I have some more to say about Boimler's character development and things. So we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to that. I didn't mention in the summary, but the very final scene of this episode was kind of a, um, it was an Easter egg and for some people a fairly deep dive Easter egg. The Lower Decks crew uses one of those anomalies they've collected is a long distance communication artifact. They use it to prank call and tease Armus, the oil slime monster that killed Tasha Yar. Right. Um, it's interesting that it's something like 17 years after Tasha's killed in the Star Trek timeline, Armus is a name that doesn't need explaining to the other Starfleet ensigns. That's right. Um, they all know who he is, or it is, whatever it is. I, I have mixed feelings about that. I guess, you know, Armus was a bad guy who killed Tasha, and we wish that hadn't happened. But I might have been just as happy if they didn't bring him back doing pratfalls and things. I don't know. Right. It's an ugly piece of Star Trek history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of that ending, I wanted to run this by you. I don't know if I'm imagining this, but it, it seemed as if the ending in this episode was a little awkward because to me, it just seemed like it took forever to resolve everything. I mean, you've got a bunch of things here that need to be resolved. At first, you've got Boimler saving Tendi, so that's taken care of. And then you have Freeman and Shax leaving the Packlid planet with this new intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that storyline is resolved. You've got Rutherford and Mariner apologizing to Tendi. You've got Casey getting his comeuppance and Boimler getting his attaboy. And all of that gets fit in before their prank call to Armus. It just seemed like it, it took a long time to wrap everything up. It was complicated. I mean, there are basically two subplots in this episode but there are essentially, well, the, what you just listed was five different resolutions of the storyline. And that is pretty complicated to do in roughly a half hour episode. I just wonder if they could have done that a little bit more elegantly, I guess. Well, um, why don't we go ahead and move on to the underlying meanings of this episode, messages and the like that the writers maybe wanted to convey to us. And you're going to laugh because I'm going to say again, it's about leadership. Right. Which is a recurring, at least in my perceptions of these episodes, is a recurring theme that we've seen across many animated and live action episodes. And I'll come back to that. But, but we also see, again, the theme that we've seen again and again of being the person you should be, the person you want to be, uh, the person you are meant to be as a person and as a leader also. Boimler's message to the other red shirts about being your own captain, don't copy other people, be yourself. Mm -hmm. It's basically about self-determination, which I think you would agree, Rodney, is one of the real core ideas of the Star Trek philosophy, all the way back to the original series. Absolutely. It's, it's also a case of actions speak louder than words. When Boimler makes himself ridiculous, essentially, to rescue Tindy, and you know, Casey doesn't like that, but Ransom compliments Boimler for his leadership in doing that. It's interesting to me that Boimler telling the Richards, be your own captain, is pretty much the same message Guinan gave Riker in The Best of Both Worlds. 
remember Picard was captured by the board. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in, in the second of the two episodes in which Riker is in the ready room. He looks at Picard's empty chair and he says, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And then Guinan comes in and tells Riker to let Picard go. In effect, she's telling him, she didn't use these words, but saying to be his own captain. Don't try to copy other people. Be yourself to be the best leader. No, I remember that very well. And I think uh, we can connect this storyline to the Freeman storyline on Pack the Planet looking for the biggest helmet. I might, I might be reading too much into this, but the Packlets keep calling Freeman Janeway because they're not very bright. And Freeman keeps insisting that she's not, that she's Captain Freeman. And symbolically, she's being her own captain. She's not trying to be Janeway. And I feel like there's that links the two plot lines together. Remember in an earlier episode, uh, the Packleds mistook Cerritos for Enterprise. Right. And they do that here also. And they don't believe when Captain Freeman says, no, that's not who I am. Right. They're, they're not, I, yeah, they're not terribly bright. Um, I, I did want to talk a little bit more about your point that actions uh, speak louder than words. And this is kind of my take on, on the theme Looking at Boimler's criticisms of Casey and the Red Shirts. So he says, well, you're not being your own captains, uh, which you mentioned. And another thing is that they're so focused on carrying themselves like leaders and giving speeches and the like that they've forgotten that they're part of the crew, right? And Mariner does this too when she's complaining about anomaly consolidation duty. In a way, she's forgotten that she's part of the crew, right? This is her job. And that whole task goes really goes south when Mariner and Rutherford let Tendy do it on her own. That's when things really get out of hand. And they, right then, they've kind of forgotten that they're her crewmates. So that is the bad thing, right? That's what you need to avoid if you're going to serve on a starship. By the end, right, uh, Casey is assigned the job of cleaning up after Rumdar in the airlock. So he's got his work to do. And Mariner and Rutherford, realize that they were punks and they apologize to Tendi. So for me, it's all about the importance of doing your duty and doing your work. That's what Boimler does when he rescues Tendi and Ransom recognizes his effort and his leadership. And Casey finds other ways or tries to, to be recognized and he ends up with this meaningless award. To kind of close the loop on your comments then, Casey's actions, you talked about actions speaking louder than words, his actions didn't really result in benefits because they were counterproductive and in speaking louder than words didn't accomplish, his actions didn't accomplish what they thought they would. Right, that's right. And one of the other outcomes, the the messages of this episode is that Rutherford and Mariner conclude they they should have fed off of Tendi's enthusiasm rather than trying to damp it down. When something has to be done, complaining about it just makes it worse. It's interesting that Mariner sometimes complains a lot, but, you know, we already talked about the episode in which Mariner gets all the worst jobs and found ways to, to enjoy them, uh, Moist Vessel last season. In any job that has to be done or needs to be done, complaining about it just sours it. Uh, yeah. It's not necessarily a big philosophical statement in this episode, but I think it's good practical advice for life. If the job has to be done, might as well make the best of it rather than make the worst of it. Yeah, and it's important work. 
And I think this is a good example of how Lower Decks tries to be a workplace comedy. Because I, I bet many of us have been in a situation at work where we've had or been brought down by people who complain too much. <laughs> and that kind of negativity can rot an organization from the inside out. And so that kind of makes Mariner the villain of this episode. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts or conclusions about this episode, Michael? Yeah, I, I have what do you a think? few. Uh, a simple one up front is I'm realizing more and more that the Packlets were chosen as villains, and that goes back to last season, but Packlets were chosen as villains because they can be dangerous, yeah, but they, it's also really easy for the writers to make them humorous. I think they've really pulled off something here, and I just thought of this, that, I mean, the Packlets, they're very dim, they're good comedy relief, and yet they are very scary, you know? is I think maybe this is a new thing in Star Trek. I'm not sure I'd have to think about that. Well, I think we when we first met them in Next Generation, we saw some of that, that they turned out to be much more malevolent than, than we first thought. As a species, they didn't invent any of this technology they use. They, right. one way or the other, they stole it. And it would be interesting to know as a species how that started, how they mm -hmm. got their first, their first access. But so they, they are consumers. They're using what, what other people uh, create. But just because of the way they were presented originally and how Lower Dex is using them, yeah, they can be humorous. And so they add to the humor, but that doesn't make them any less dangerous. You mentioned uh, Boimler's attaboy that he got from Ransom. I don't think in the first season of Lower Decks, he would have been capable of thinking outside the box enough to save Tendi with humor. Even when he was on the Titan, remember, he wrote down that he doesn't need to write everything down. And, <laughs> yeah. And that kind of showed his lack of imagination, either lack of imagination or lack of self-confidence, or maybe both. And that mm. was not too many episodes ago. But we are seeing some character growth here, maybe a fair amount of it resulting from being around Mariner, who is, I mean, her thing is thinking outside the box. Sometimes that's beneficial. Sometimes it has some downsides. But we are definitely seeing some growth in Boimler, and he is learning. That's a good point. I also wanted to note, I don't like the terminology that refers to Star Trek continuity as canon. I just don't prefer to use that terminology. But I always have liked the fact that there really is strong continuity that makes all of Star Trek fit together, usually, usually quite well. But I'm wondering more and more whether what we see in Lower Decks will or can ever be reflected in live-action Star Trek, like even a passing allusion to the Packlet attacks or to the existence of the California class mm. and, the, and the second contact mission. I talked in a previous podcast here about actually live-action characters appearing, uh, Mariner and Boimler and, and that, but we're more and more th seeing things that I just can't imagine in the live-action universe, like Rutherford blimping up like Aunt Marge and Harry Potter from one right. of those artifacts. It's, it's just hard to resolve that happening in, in the live action universe. So I'm wondering if, if we're ever going to see that, is Lower Decks kind of a parallel universe, even where maybe some physical laws are different? Retrospectively, it seems that that's how the, the animated series is treated. There are a few things that they have drawn from it and used in live action Star Trek, but a lot of things 
like giant Spock, they they have not. So I'm just I'm just wondering how closely we can say that lower decks fits into this overall continuity. You know, there are some things I think that they could fit in pretty easily. I mean, it, I, the whole pack led story arc to me is pretty believable. Whereas Rutherford blimping up like like Aunt Marge or these Duplers, uh, that's just I yeah. can't see that in live action Star Trek. So if it ever happens, uh, I'll be really excited because I do think some of this can be plausibly referred to in live action Star Trek, but it's a good question. You know, we see Lower Decks refer to all kinds of people and events in Star Trek continuity. And now we're waiting to see whether what happens in Lower Decks will be reflected in other Star Trek series. Yeah, these these Easter eggs in Lower Decks, I think, has turned out to be one of the big appeals of the series. Uh, people just wondering, what are they going to refer to next? <laughs> and figuring out what the references are, because some of them, some of them are pretty obvious. Some of them are kind of kind of deep dives. But we have four more episodes of this season to see where they go. Season's going by pretty swiftly. It's a little hard to believe that we have only four more episodes. So that does it for this week. We'd like to thank you for joining us this week. And we'll see you next week for episode 7 of 10 of this season's Lower Decks. Now, the best way to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements is at our Twitter feed. And that's at Trek underscore Academy. A pinned post there also has links to several platforms for your podcast app or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week.